0: Doesn't saying that there must be an intelligent designer behind nature commit the God of the gaps fallacy? Don't the laws of nature explain why the world is the way it is and how life arose on the earth? While many people might think that design arguments for God's existence died out after the advent of Darwin's theory of evolution, design arguments for God have been making a comeback in recent years. Among these arguments is the argument from fine-tuning, and in this episode, I am going to explain the fine-tuning argument and show how it is defended. So once again, I hope you'll stick around and join me as we show how nature points to God's divine power and intellect. Welcome back everyone. In this lecture, uh, like I said, we are going to be doing the argument from fine tuning. So in the last lecture we talked about design arguments in general, and I discussed three arguments including William Paley's watchmaker argument, Aquinas' fifth way, and in this lecture I was going to be talking about the fine tuning argument in detail. Just like how I went in detail in the Kalum argument after we discussed cosmological arguments, this was the uh, design argument I wanted to focus on and show you guys um, how it works. So for this lecture and the last lecture, uh, our kind of adopted Bible passage is Romans one, uh, Romans chapter one, verse twenty, and the uh, the the passage says. For His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So um, I just said a few words about that in the last lecture, so if you are interested in that passage and how it's relevant to uh, design arguments and the argument from fine-tuning, I suggest you uh, go uh, listen to that lecture as well. So, um, our questions for reflection for this lecture, I've got a handful. Um, our first one is, some people say we shouldn't be surprised that the parameters of the universe allow for life, because if they didn't, we wouldn't be here in the first place. This is known as the truism objection. Do you think this is a good objection to the fine-tuning argument? Um Another one is, can reasoning in the Kalam argument help us disprove multiverse theory? I'm going to be talking about multiverse theory in this lecture, so you can be thinking about that. Keep that in mind as we go along. Another discussion question is, can postulating the infinite multiverse theory be damaging to the assumptions of science or how we view causality in the world? Why or why not? And the last one is, do you think a multiverse would need a beginning? And we've already kind of touched on that, but but some of these we haven't, so... You can keep those in mind as we go along in this lecture. So, I touched briefly on what fine-tuning is in the last lecture, okay? But, as I showed you in the last lecture, here is our contemporary uh, formulation of the argument argument from fine-tuning. And this is the way that you will see... William Lane Craig present and defend this argument, and it's and it says, premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Now, before I get started in all that, I wanted to be really careful to define what we mean by fine-tuning. Because um, when you get into this debate, you'll see that a lot of time, uh, a lot of times, people who object to the uh, fine-tuning argument do so on the basis that they um, they're not sure what. It's not that they're not sure of what fine-tuning is, but fine-tuning can be a, a, a sticking point for a lot of people, and it can create misconceptions. Okay. And some people think that when we start talking about fine-tuning, it's a loaded word, as if we've been assuming that there's just design and that God exists from day from day one, from step one, okay? So it's important to define what you mean by fine-tuning when you talk about it, because it does sound like a teleologically loaded term, right? But here's my definition from it, from William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith, which is actually one of the books that I have um, um which, which is one of the books that I have uh, recommended uh, several times throughout these lectures. Uh, Craig defines it as, so he says, fine-tuning is small deviations from the actual values and quantities of the constants of the physical laws of nature would render the universe life-prohibiting. That's what we're talking about when we talk about fine-tuning, Okay. In Doug, uh, Dr. G- Douglas Grotice's uh, Christian Apologetics book, he puts it this way. He says on page 248, this simply means that many aspects of the universe are closely calibrated and make human life possible. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about fine-tuning. We're not assuming that God has done all this. We are just making a matter-of-fact statement that there are constants in the laws of nature and if these and these constants aren't determined by anything within the laws themselves, and if the constants were a little bit higher or a little bit lower, life couldn't exist in the universe. Okay, and let me show you some examples of that. Uh, the law of Newton's law of gravity, for example, is uh, you can list it out mathematically as F equals G uh, times m1 times m2 divided by r squared okay and in this um, in this equation F stands for the magnitude of the attractive force okay our uh, our M1 and M2 are in a parenthesis together that's the mass of two objects R squared the R stands for the distance between two objects and the G stands for the gravitational constant okay that gravitational constant, by the way, so um, I, again, I, and I say this all the time, but I'm not a scientist, so I'm not sure how they came up with this uh, equation, but just like any other thing, I'm sure it, it had to do with a lot of experiments and, and, and seeing how all this works mathematically over and over and over again. What happens is the, the scientists have discovered that the gravitational constant just is what it is. Um, you know, all of these other things can change the magnitude. Well, yeah, the, the mass of the two objects, obviously the distance of two objects, but there's there for, for one, there's nothing that determines what the gravitational constant is. It just is what it is. You just have to plug that number in there. It's, it's never going to be something that's going to change in your, in your equation. And like I said, they found that there's, it's just, it is that thing. Now, But as far as this constant goes, when we talk about fine-tuning, especially with the gravitational constant, physicist PCW Davies uh, explained that if the gravitational or weak force constants were to be changed by one part in 10,100, which that's just another way of saying basically 0.0001. If it went up by that much or or lower than that, life would be impossible in the universe. Uh, Gravity would make it so that life would have never formed and none of us would be here right now. So that's what we're getting at when we talk about fine-tuning. In all these laws of nature, you'll find these constants like this. Nothing determines what they are. Scientists have just discovered what they are over the years. And if these were a little bit higher or a little bit lower, none of us would be here just to give you an idea and when we talk about how this is determined and, and how you find these constants in the laws of nature these uh, there are constants that you find in all the major uh, in all the fundamental forces of nature for example so in the electromagnetic force you have the electromagnetic coupling constant there's the gravitational coupling constant in in gravity. There's a weak force coupling constant in the weak force, and there's a strong force coupling constant in the strong force. Um, I've got all those listed here. Uh, you know, I could I could say them, but it wouldn't really mean much. Um, but this these uh, with these fundamental laws of nature, there's uh, also um, interesting things about this as well. Um, so yeah, like I already said that if the weak force was was changed by just 0. 0.0001 if it was higher or lower or if the gravitational constant was was higher or lower by 0. 0.0001 life wouldn't be possible. Um what else is there the um it's it's not it's not just in the forces though, okay? Uh there's other factors that if they changed um, by just a little bit we wouldn't be here. Um, the expansion of the universe for example is just another one that doesn't necessarily have to do with the cosmological constants but uh, the, the expansion of the universe for example. So Hubble's law states that every galaxy is moving from the earth at a proportionate speed according to its distance right. Um, Hubble's law is mathematically formulated as and I, sh- I should have had a slide for this but um, v equals H0D, um, okay? V stands for velocity, H0 is the Hubble constant, and D is the distance a galaxy is from the Earth. Uh, or it would be, D could be the, just the, the distance from any particular observer. In that equation, uh, the Hubble constant is just another, uh, uh, it's just another constant that is not determined by anything. And uh, another, another arbitrary parameter of the universe is the density of the universe. And, you know, thinking about the expansion, the density of the universe, um, uh, an example of, of how these work is uh, Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, estimated that if the expansion rate had decreased by one part in 100,000 million million, that's a, a zero point zero with, with 19 zeros and a one at the end. Uh, so if, if, the, if the expansion rate had decreased by one part in a hundred thousand million million, one second after the big bang, the universe would have collapsed back in on itself a long time ago. And all that has to do with the density and the expansion of the universe. But, but the density and expansion of the universe are not determined by any of the laws of nature. They just are the certain levels that they're at. Okay. So that's what we are getting at when we talk about fine tuning. We're just matter-of-factly stating that there's certain constants found in nature and they are just at these just right levels to allow for life and there's nothing in in nature that determines that they ought to be at those levels. They just are what they are. Okay? And that's and that not only explains what we mean by fine tuning when we go to defend premise 1. But also it kind of already, in explaining what that is, it actually gets you halfway through uh, uh, defending some of this. So again, let's just talk about this. Uh, So premise one of our argument says the fine tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Premise two says it is not due to physical necessity or chance. The conclusion is therefore it is due to design. So let's talk about how we would defend premise one. Obviously, it's really important to define what you mean by fine-tuning. So uh, whoever you're talking to knows what you're saying. Um, but, um, so pre- premise one is giving three choices. the This fine-tuning of the universe is either due to physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, whenever you are um, defending arguments or... Uh, uh, critiquing an argument, you know, reviewing an argument, seeing if it's logical, seeing if the premises are true. If you are presented with an either-or statement of any kind, whether it's a choice between two options or three or more, you always want to make sure that you're not giving, you're not being given like a false dilemma or just a list of things that isn't exhaustive. You know, if there's a fourth choice here, then Our premise one would not be true because there could be another option that we're not considering. Now, having said that, whenever I look at this list, when we ask ourselves, why are these constants fine-tuned for life? Why are they at just the right amounts? Um, You know, what are all the possibilities for that? We're saying, this is saying that it's either because they necessarily are at those levels for some physical reason, uh, or they're just at those levels by chance, or they were designed from outside. Now, if you can think of a fourth example, I would like to hear it, but I personally think that does sound exhaustive, and there isn't any other reason why those things, uh, why the fine tuning can be the amounts it is. So, um, I I honestly, uh, in my time learning about this argument, I haven't heard anyone uh, spend too much time saying uh, that they don't think premise one is, is an exhaustive list usually the, uh, the arguments are, are mainly against the very concept of fine-tuning itself because uh, people will think that it's, it's got loaded language in it where you're basically already assuming that God has designed the universe in your first premise, okay? So that's why you just have to be careful to explain that fine-tuning isn't, uh, doesn't have a design concept built into it. It's just this matter-of-fact statement that the constants or it's just the right levels for life, and there's no reason for that, okay? Uh, so you shouldn't get too much pushback for premise one, and I think it is exhaustive. I think those are the only three options. It's either physical necessity, chance, or design, okay? Now, in premise two, you you need to rule out, uh, and and the way this is defended is, premise two says it is not due to physical necessity or chance. So uh, you explain why the the, the Fine-tuning is not due to physical necessity first, or you could do chance. It's, it's either way, but um, just the way it's listed, I'll talk about physical necessity first. But honestly, I've already been talking about that, right? Um, it is known that these are these cosmological constants are at just the right levels for life, but there is nothing in nature that determines that they ought to be that way. Um, so it doesn't seem like these fine tuning is due to physical necessity. Now, having said that someone, if they're scientifically minded, they might mention that it's possible that one day someone, you know, scientists are trying to come up with what they call a theory of everything, um, also listed as a, a toe, a toe. <laughs> um, and, and someone might say, well, one day someone might come up with a theory of everything, and it probably would explain why those constants at the levels they are. Now, if someone were to, to say this um, uh, in response to it not being due to physical necessity, you can tell them that even though these theories of everything sound like they're going to explain everything, scientists actually understand that they aren't. these theories aren't going to literally explain everything, right? Right. Um, they're actually just meant to explain all of the four fundamental forces of the universe through one force uh, and one particle. Basically, these theories of everything are just trying to unify the four major forces of... Uh, unify or, and, and basically explain the four forces of nature through one force and one particle, if that makes sense. And so far, the closest we've even come to a theory of everything is something called string theory. Um, but, uh, now it's, it's not that it's not relatively new. Like it's been around for a while now, um, uh, string theory is, and scientists have studied it, uh, theori- theori- uh theoreticians have been looking at it and they, so if, if you don't know much about string theory, or if you've never heard of it, string theory postulates that our universe is made of 11 dimensions, um. And the most fundamental particle, to my understanding, is these little uh, two-dimensional strings. Um, that I don't know, it seems like every time I've seen a picture of it, they just look like these little rings, but they're supposed to be two dimensional. They're not even uh, they're, they don't even have three dimensions. Um, and, and scientists understand that even with string theory, um, there's things that aren't explained. One of those things, for example, is why are there, um, why are there 11 dimensions? String theory doesn't say that there has to be 11 dimensions. It doesn't, uh, that's just a part of the theory. Uh, there's other things too, like, uh, uh, string theorists know that, um, string theory doesn't entail that there's just going to be one universe in one, uh, formulation, you know, in, in one configuration, the string theory actually allows for many possible universes. And in these universes, there are life permitting universes and there are life permissive universes, such that uh, it, it really starts to look similar to what we're looking at now, with all the different, thinking about all the different configurations of what our universe could look like. Um, I have this super long quote from uh, Stephen Hawking. And even though it's really long, I, I thought I would just go ahead and read it because uh, I think it's, it's really important in this part. Uh, so Stephen Hawking, um, this is a paper he presented at, at, a, at a meeting in UC Davis in 2003. He says, Even when we understand the ultimate theory, it won't tell us much about how the universe began. It cannot predict the dimensions of space-time, the gauge group, or other parameters of the low-energy effective theory. It won't determine how this energy divided between conventional matter and a cosmological constant or quintessence. So to come back to the question, does string theory predict the state of the universe? The answer is that it does not. It allows a vast landscape of possible universes in which we occupy an anthropologically, um, anthropically permitted location. So, uh, like I said, from what I understand, string theory allows... And I didn't mention this, but string theory allows for ten to the five hundredth power possible universes, and they're saying that um, there's a only a small fraction of these are life permitting. Um, so, the even in with string theory, it wouldn't explain why the universe has life in it. It, it it's there's nothing about the string theory string theory being a theory of everything that tells us that the universe must have life in it so the the issue the problem right now is is really uh, tough because we've got all these fundamental forces of nature which haven't been unified yet they're working on unifying them through a a, a physical uh theory of everything but like I said, the best candidate for something like that so far still allows for many different universes and doesn't uh, entail that life arises out of necessity. So um, it looks like very much so that uh, the, the fine-tuning in nature is, is not due to physical necessity, okay? Um, like we said, there's nothing about these laws that determine that these, uh, these constants need to be at those, at those levels. Now, probably the most controversial portion of, of defending this argument you're going to find is whenever you try to argue that the fine-tuning is not due to chance. Um, but there's there's a way to go about discussing this. Um, really, and, and I'm going to talk about some of the numbers. Um, I'm not exactly sure how they come up with some of these numbers. But there's, there's, there's just great ways to talk about it. Uh, Long story short, um, one thing I've heard is that if you went up to a a whiteboard or or a chalkboard in a in a really large classroom, and you just took your chalk or your marker and you put one dot on that board, the white space or the green space on those boards would represent all the universes that are that we could possibly have that wouldn't allow for life and that one little dot in that huge space would represent all of the universes that that would be life permitting all the possible universes that would be life permitting and that can just give you an idea of, of how vastly improbable it is that our universe is life permitting and and I, and it would be improbable if you rolled the dice Numerous times, but uh, for you know, for all we know, and like I said, when you know, we were looking at the cosmological arguments, looking at the Kalam argument, we talked about how there's these oscillating models of the universe, maybe there's an infinite number of big bangs. Uh, For all we know, the big bang has only happened once, right? That's all we that's the only evidence we have. Our universe came into existence one time. So it's not just the fact that it, even if you are rolling the dice, the probability of having a life-permitting universe is is just is r- super low. It's just, it's also the fact that it's only happened once, and it just so happened to hit those all those constants at all those just right levels, and life is here. Okay, so you can explain it that way. Another way you can explain it is by using. Um, something. So this is a, I was going to use a concept called specified complexity, which comes from William Dembski, who is a intelligent design theorist. Um, he's, I, I get this definition from, um, a book called the design revolution that William Dembski wrote in 2004. Uh, it, it says, uh, Oh, excuse me. I, I've got my parentheses here. Th- this definition is, um, from Doug uh, Douglas Grotice's, uh Christian Apologetics, specified complexity, uh, and, and it, it says here a, a concept used in intelligent design arguments to indicate a state of affairs that is both improbable and specified. Okay, I've got what I have listed under this is what's called uh, William Dembski's uh, design. It's his it's his matrix to infer design. You ask yourself, when you're looking at a natural system, some system in nature, and you're trying to determine whether you should make a design inference or not, uh, basically conclude that some system in nature must have been designed from the outside uh, by a designer of some kind, Um, there's three questions you ask. Is the natural system contingent? Two, is the natural system complex? Three, is the natural system specific? Uh, when you ask is the natural system contingent that's basically just the question of um, was the is is the uh, natural system necessarily is it the way it is necessarily pretty much what we just discussed when we asked if the fine tuning is due to physical necessity okay when you get to complexity that's pretty easy Uh, you just ask is it complex or is it a simple system you know uh, and then, third, is the natural system specific, uh, and and specific means uh, does the natural system have some kind of significance, some kind of meaning um, to to us as intelligent beings, uh, and, and I'll get to that in a second here as well. Um, but what Dembski would say is that if the answer to all three of these questions is yes, then you can infer design. Okay. One example that I've heard, <laughs> uh, it, I think kind of gets at the heart of all this, has to do with a, a, a man named Tom uh, getting a license plate. So, um, and I, I think, I, yes, I can get in this scenario from uh, William Lane Craig's book, Reasonable Faith. Uh, William Lane Craig, I'm, I'm asking you to imagine that your name is Tom, and you're going to the DMV to get some license plate, and your birthday is on September 1st, 2004, Okay. So obviously, you know, and I've got a Texas plate listed here, obviously with the amount of different uh, combinations of letters and numbers, there's just a vast amount of possibilities of what you could get on your, on your license plate. So if you got a license plate that just said some random combination, say KCV9370, you're not really going to think anything of it, Right. But if, you, if your name is Tom and you were born on September 1st, 2004, and you get your license plate and it says Tom 9104, and you didn't ask for that or fill anything out, you are going to be extremely surprised because that, so it's complex, right? There could have been any number of uh, numbers and letters that could have came up on your license plate it is contingent because you didn't tell them, you didn't specify and tell them that they ought to put a certain thing. So it should have been completely random. And three, it's specific because it actually has meaning to you as someone named Tom who was born in 2004, September 1st, right? So this is not only contingent and complex, it's also specific. So you would be, I think, rational to infer that uh, there was an intelligence behind this, someone who chose, or s- someone was behind it in, in making your license plate um, say that say that specific thing, um, and and when we turn this question to the universe, especially in light of the fine tuning, um, it becomes apparent that running through our our design matrix. Uh, The answer to all these questions is yes, right? Is the the fine-tuning of the universe contingent? Uh, And and, maybe even the universe itself. Yes, the universe uh, is contingent. Uh, The fine-tuning is contingent. Um, So there's nothing about the universe, there's nothing about the fine-tuning that says that it must be the way it is. The universe could have been any number of possible ways, uh, it could have existed. It could have not existed. The, the laws, um, uh, the, excuse me, the, the, fi- the, the cosmological constants in the laws could have been any number of things. There's nothing about physical reality that determines they have to be that way. So, so this uh, is the universe and the fine-tuning for life are um, uh, uh, contingent. Now, we ask ourselves, is this natural system complex? The answer to that would be yes as well. I mean, we, we don't even have to talk about um, how complex the universe is and how complex all the different laws and the and the constants are uh, because, you know, we don't even understand all of these laws. We don't even understand the, the, the universe yet. We're, we've got a long way to go. Uh, you know, we've talked about how they're still trying to come up with theories of everything to explain and unify the laws. Uh, definitely are we're looking at something complex. Uh, definitely not along the lines of... Um, You know, just like a a basic piece of dirt somewhere, right? So um, then we get to our third question. Is the natural system specific? Now, what we would say about this, if you're looking at the universe as a whole, of course we would say it is specific because it has life in it. And not only does it have life in it, but it also has uh, advanced life uh, life that is conscious, uh, including animals and, 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 humans. And then when you get to humans, we're talking about life that is self-conscious and has free will and an intellect. Um, you know, because when you look at these different, we've already talked about how improbable it would be, um, to, to, for, for the universe to just, uh, come into existence with all these, uh, a constants at just the right levels right there's so many universes that are life permissive but and there's just a little tiny bit that are life permitting um but it's not just that like even within that range of life permitting universes not all of those are going to be conducive for advanced life so but but this is this is significant, is it not? For for us as intelligent beings, as self aware, self conscious beings, you know, we don't we don't just understand the universe like we create our own culture. We uh, we we it's not that we just find meaning in in a life permitting universe. In a life permitting universe, there are beings who create meaning. So it is definitely specific uh, and. And there's nothing really all that special about all these life permissive universes. There definitely is something special about and specific uh, about a life per, uh, permissive universe, right? And I, I just wanted to show you guys uh, one more example to kind of get at the uh, to to get at this. So now one um, one objection that some people might make is. Well, the thing is, uh, we are just here, right? So if we're here, then it just happened that way. So it must have just necessarily been that way. Um, and, and I wanted to talk about, uh, a scenario that'll kind of help you explain why that is an incorrect way to think about this. So, um, Besides the whiteboard or or, or, uh, um, chalkboard analogy that I've heard, I've also read that the probability of a life-permitting universe is the same as entering a lottery, okay, in which you choose a number, and the winning number is a single number among a pool of a billion, billion, billion numbered balls, Okay, so there's a billion, billion, billion numbered balls, and you have to choose just one number, and you have to get it correct. That's how the lottery works. Okay, so, you know, when we think about, um, our, you know, kind of be thinking about the explanatory filter, our design filter, Uh, but let's say that the winner of the lottery that we just mentioned turns out to be the manager's son. (laughs) The manager of the lottery, it just so happens that his son wins this lottery. This is just almost, it's just so improbable that really any one person is going to win that it's almost beyond impossible. Now, would we just throw our hands up and say, well, someone had to win. And since the manager's son won, it would, it must've just been by chance. You know, it must've just been by chance. Well, uh, no, we wouldn't. Right. Because not only is the it's random, you know, think about the filter. It's 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 contingent, it's it's supposed to be random, uh, it's definitely complex because of the amount of balls, and it is definitely specific because there is meaning to this the, the sun winning, right? He's related to the manager of the thing. So that would be just another example. Now but if someone says, uh, well, you know, it, it just so happens, uh well, you know since well let, let's put it this way. So say that you won the lottery instead of the manager's son. Uh, if, if you just if you were just to say, well, someone had to win. So whoever that was, it was just determined to be that way. This objection would be like saying, well, since I won the lottery, um, it must have been destiny and there was no possible way that anyone else could have won. But the thing about this is that that's obviously absurd, right? Because there were millions of other people who entered the lottery. And there would be, and obviously, like we mentioned, there would be billions upon billions of other balls that could have been picked out of the pool. If someone says, well, it just had to be that way because this is the way it is, like, uh, that is just that is just only taking in account the one universe that's in front of us what the problem with that objection is that it's not taking into account the the numerous vast amount of universes that are life permissive because that's what we're looking at we're not just looking at our one universe of course it has life in it and of course in this universe there there needs to be life that's why the constants you know the constants allow for that they're they're that way But if you say, well, it just is that way, so it just must be that, it just must necessarily be that way. No, it doesn't have to be that way because there's, like we said, it's a contingent system. So there's nothing that says it has to be this way. So you just need to remind people of that. Um, Another way to look at uh, why we would infer that uh, it's due to design is is to look at it from like an uh, inference to the best explanation um type inference right so you can ask yourself given the high improbability of a universe which only began once remember to have all the constants necessary to permit life which is a better explanation would a designer explain a life-permitting universe better than no designer right uh you know to put it another way assuming there were no designer would you expect a life permitting universe and i think the answer is that you wouldn't expect a life permitting universe without a designer and you would expect a life permitting universe with a designer right i mean it just it regardless of whether the um, probability impresses you or not the fact is that you can just treat it like an inference to the best explanation. Say, look, it, it, would you at least say it's reasonable to expect a life permitting universe if there's a designer? And if there's not, to not expect one? I, I think that's pretty reasonable. So, therefore, it is due to design. And, um, and i think this one's a little bit easier not as mind bending as the Kalam, right if we infer that there's a designer of the universe <laughs> it's got to be some kind of intelligence above and beyond physical reality that is controlling all this guiding everything to its uh uh, uh telos right and and maybe even like imposing design from the outside the extrinsic teleology and this being would have to be extremely intelligent and extremely powerful, uh, right? So it's, it's really easy to infer from these design arguments that this designer must be God. I mean, you know, some people might argue that, okay, well, we can talk about the, you know, life arising on the earth. Maybe that was some aliens or something. But when we get into the fine-tuning of the, the universe and the very constants of the laws of nature themselves, it's really easy to infer that all that comes from... Um, comes from God. Oh, and, and one thing I, for, I almost forgot to mention is that an, an objection to this that you're going to run into is is multiverse theory. Some people argue that, well, if we lived in a multiverse with an infinite number of universes, um, the, the probability of us living, uh, the probability of there being a universe with life in it is going to be 100%, because in an um, infinite universe, with an infinite number of, uh, excuse me, in an infinite multiverse with an infinite number of universes, every single possibility is going to be played out eventually, right? So we shouldn't be surprised that we're in one because it had to be somewhere. Now, the the issue with this though, um, is that for it, well, there's there's many issues with it, and and that's what I was kind of getting at. I almost forgot to mention this until I looked at our reflection questions, is that. Um, an issue people point out with if you try to explain something by pointing to an uh, an infinite multiverse the problem is that uh, that really explains too much it can be damaging to science because if the answer to why is there why do we have life in this universe why are the constants the way they are if it's because we live in a multiverse with an infinite number of universes so that's bound to happen that can actually be your explanation for anything <laughs> you know Uh, you know, why, why does the sun, um, why does the earth rotate around the sun 365 days? Uh, well, we're, we're in an infinite multiverse, so it's bound to happen in one of them. You know, you can explain every single thing in reality that way. So it's really not a helpful explanation. Um, and, but there's another thing that I, I like to emphasize is, That if you kind of couple this with the Kalam reasoning, you can also show that philosophically it seems like a a universe with an infinite number of, uh, a multiverse with an infinite number of universes would actually be impossible to have. You can't have an actually infinite number of universes like the Kalam talks about. So not only does this uh, multiverse theory not really explain anything, it also uh, can be shown to be to, to be false if you uh, use the metaphysical, the philosophical reasoning from the kalâm. So, uh, so yeah, but that's the that's the design argument. Um, uh, the arg- excuse me, the argument from fine tuning. So, I, you know, I, a lot of people I talk to haven't heard of this one. They might have heard of the kalâm. It's one of the more famous. So, I always get excited to get to talk about this. I'm. I don't deal with this as much as I've you know, talked about the Kalam, but I, I love talking about this. It's really interesting, I think. But here's our questions for reflection again. Uh, our first one was, some people say we shouldn't be surprised that the parameters of the universe allow for life, because if they didn't, we wouldn't be here in the first place. Do you think this is a good objection to the fine-tuning argument? So hopefully you were able to answer that through what I already discussed. The next two are, can reasoning in the Kalam argument help us disprove multiverse theory? pretty much just explained that one. And can postulating the infinite multiverse theory be damaging to the assumptions of science or how we view causality in the world? Why or why not? And the last one is, do you think a multiverse would need a beginning? So I hope you found those uh, reflection questions helpful. I hope you uh, um, get to think about those and, and, and connect all the dots. Uh, 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 here's our quote uh, to leave you with. Uh, again, it's the same one from Frank Turek. We'll be switching out after this and frank says in stealing from god why atheists need god to make their case on page 26 he says this created and fine-tuned universe along with the orderly cause and effect nature of reality are best explained by an intelligent being with attributes remarkably congruent to the god of the bible once again i wanted to um, promote my seminary where i learned a lot of this stuff you know if i ever make a mistake on any of these videos it's not their fault it's all mine but uh southern evangelical seminary and bible college is in matthews north carolina i suggest you check them out if you want to go deeper into apologetics philosophy theology it is a uh, evangelical seminary non-denominal nation uh, non-denominational there in uh, north carolina uh, they've got great online program programs great faculty Um, And and I highly recommend it. I got my master's degree in apologetics and my Ph.D. in philosophy there. Um, Also, uh, don't forget that they have a free resource on apologetics. They've got about a 50-page book, a PDF book that you can get from their their website, ses.edu, if you go there and uh, hover over the media tab click on why trust the god of the bible it'll take you to this free resource that they're really excited to share with everyone and I hope you'll check that out also don't forget kingdom preparatory academy in Lubbock Texas this is where i teach a class on apologetics every other spring um but that's not really why I talk about this. I just talk about it because I, I love this school and I hope it grows. It's a classical school in Lubbock, Texas. They've got a university model where your your uh, students will go to class Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So by the time they get to college, uh, there's really no culture shock. That's what they've been doing their whole academic career, and they can do all their homework on their own. Plus, it's a classical model, so they're taught how to think not what to think. And that's one of the reasons why I've sending my kids there, and I love it so much. Obviously, it's, it's Christ-centered. It's a, uh, it's a Christian classical school. So I hope you'll consider that. If you are interested in a classical um, alternative to education, it's Kingdom Preparatory Academy. You can check out their website, kingdomprep.org, uh, or just Google it. And, um, and, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this lecture on the argument from fine-tuning. Uh, In the next ones, uh, we are going to be switching to the uh, moral argument. So I hope to see you there, and I hope you have a great week.